When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. And what's my deal? I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's just what it is. With me, as always, is the skeptic, the voice of the people, the little devil on my shoulder, Kristen Stuttered. Hey, Kristen. You really are sticking with that. He's I like keeping it. Little devil on my shoulder is, is here to stay. I think it's at this time the most appropriate uh, moniker for you. <laughs> it just it feels fitting. I really am. I'm part of a, I'm part of a little group that goes dancing called the little devils. The little devils. Yeah. So, you know, in many ways it fits. Yes. Uh, Kristen, we are a few weeks into our theme month, early inf June lints. Oh is boy. This also fun. another thing that is <laughs> sticking around. Yeah. It's sticking around. We are covering the early influence inductees of the class of 2022 all month long. And we're of course continuing that trend and people can probably guess by now who we're covering Harry Belafonte and who better to discuss the life work and career of Mr. Belafonte than a scholar and author of many books, but most relevantly, Becoming Belafonte, a Black Artist, Public Radical, we have with us here, Judith Smith. Hey, Judith. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to get a little bit of the lay of the land here. This is a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame podcast. Most of our guests don't know a damn thing about don't the worry. Rock Hall. Where do you fall on the spectrum? Well, I, you know, the main thing I love is the museum, mm. which I've been to our child went to college in near Cleveland and we went to the rock and roll museum every time that we could. So that I love. I don't follow the rock and roll hall of fame closely, but I did look up when Belafonte introduced Pete Seeger. Mm, that's right. When he was inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame. Yeah. So coming in with about, I would say the typical amount of yes. knowledge. Uh, Although awareness of the difference between the museum and the actual hall and induction is, right. I would say that's actually a big, that's a big knowledge bump. Like we don't often, most people say, oh, I don't know much about the hall. I've never been to Cleveland. And you knew that, that there so. isn't a, a distinction, Fabulous. one that is difficult to try and suss out. But I also I looked at the list of influences inductees mm -hmm. to just get a feel for what they might be and not be. Right, right. So the early influence category, typically, although they've they've changed it, you know, molded it a little bit to be a little more flexible in recent years. But it's typically artists from the pre-rock. Era. Right. But let's talk about Harry Belafonte. And specifically, I would like to start with your personal connection. Like what led you to writing a book about the man? I had another book that I wrote on the World War II and post-war Black left. And Belafonte was really shaped by that. He came of age, he got out of the Navy, came back to New York and was really became the person, both as a performer and as a political person that he 
was through that very broad popular front cultural left. He often mentions that his inspiration was Paul Robeson, who was a towering figure in American culture and really prominent beyond the left. And during World War II, Robeson was like a major Black figure. And at his birthday party, people sent telegrams and accolades from all over the culture. Robeson represented the voice of labor during World War II. You know, he was this triple threat. He was a football star. He was a lawyer. He was an actor whose Othello was the longest Shakespeare play on Broadway at that time in the 40s, and also a singer and a performer, but completely immersed in the idea that the singing was a way of getting people to know you and listen to you and listen to what you had to say. So Belafonte's this kid from West Indian background. He's really poor growing up, but music was all a part of the world that he lived in, both perform music and radio music. Somebody said he and his mother sang along to the radio when he was growing up, but of course they couldn't afford a radio until a little while, but when they could, they did. But he dropped out of high school midway through his freshman year and took the kind of working class jobs you could get, pushing garments in the garment district and working for a tailor and, you know, putting grocery stacking. And just at this point, he he was in New York City, but had spent time in Jamaica as yes. a child, correct? His mother and father were both from Jamaica and they were both in the United States as what we would call undocumented immigrants. And Belafonte's father wasn't so steady. And he went back to the island. His mother needed her mother to help take care of him at a pretty early age. And then he went back for a year. It's in the mid thirties. Things were horrible in Harlem, high unemployment. And she took her boys. She had a he, she had a younger son than Belafonte, and she took them back to Jamaica, thinking that it would be better there. She would be able to find a job there, and that was completely wrong. It was mm. really bad there. But she left both boys there for, I think, three or four years at that point with relatives and in boarding schools and went back to New York without him. She came back and picked them up just before the war because she felt like they were vulnerable in a British colony as the World War broke out. So Belafonte really is from Harlem. He grew up as much a part of Harlem as any place else, but he had extensive experience in Kingston and with his relatives um, in St. Anne's Parish in Jamaica. He's born in 27. He's there from, I think, like 35 to 39 or something for that long stretch. Mm -hmm. Of his childhood, yeah. Then comes back. Having soaked up a lot of the the culture and the the music of that place. Yes, but, you know, one of the things that I think is really important about Belafonte is the music is traveling all over the Caribbean and Latin America, New York, has a huge calypso presence in the 30s and the 40s. And musicians are traveling Trinidad, Jamaica, all over the place. So calypso is traveling back and forth, I think, starting in the 30s. So the music he listened to was complicated. Is I think what I want to say. In the record stores, they were selling Trinidadian Calypso, the ships that came to Kingston would be greeted with Jamaican Minto singers, a kind of folk music. So there's lots of kinds of music that he heard in Jamaica. And it was a music that was already traveling and richly responsive 
across the Caribbean. It's just fascinating to think of it as a music that is spreading commercially mm. as well as through records and a rich variety of records and that music is crossing back and forth from New York to Haiti to Venezuela to mm-hmm. Trinidad and to Jamaica, that there's just a rich interplay in that time period. So Calypso, there's a lot of people calling themselves Calypsonians, not just Trinidadian Calypsonians in that period. And a lot of music is circulating. Right. So, I mean, we, we've brought up the word Calypso and that's that's a big term uh, and genre for Harry Belafonte. How would you define Calypso? And what does it mean? I found my little quote. Can I just throw it in? Yeah, please. There was already a well-established process of Calypso reinvention in the 1930s from Trinidad to the U.S., the U.K., Jamaica, the Bahamas, Suriname, Venezuela, Ghana, and Sierra Leone, all places where singers began to refer to themselves as Calypsonian. And in the U.S., there were Calypsonians that were influential for Belafonte when he began to act and then to perform musically. Calypsonians. That's like a a term? Yeah. I I, I, that's that's a term that they use. They call themselves Calypsonians or Calypso singers as long as it was profitable to do so. (laughs) It's what my quote says. Got it. So that music was playing all over in Mm -hmm. New York when he was growing up. It would have been out the window. And I mean, it was just all over the neighborhoods where Black people grew up. And Belafonte wanted to be an actor. He got out of the Navy. He was working as a janitor. He got these tickets as a pay for janitoring to the American Negro Theater to a play. And he fell in love with acting. He felt he felt in love with the community of the actors. He said he helped break them down the scenery and he was still there several hours later. He felt like this is a world. And he was very drawn to the work of the American Negro Theater. The play he went to was a kind of anti-fascist, up-to-date pro-labor post-war play. And he was sort of excited by that. And so he really thought he wanted to be an actor and he wasn't a formal part of the American Negro Theater, but he got to be in several plays there. And that's where he met Robeson. They did a play that was a a beloved play for radicals, Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock, which is a British play that celebrates uh, or is kind of complicated about Irish revolutionary spirit and critiquing British imperialism. And they did it as in West Indian accents, so that it's a double critique Mm -hmm. of imperialism. And Robeson came backstage to their performance, and he was like really excited about that. He said he was going to go back to England and tell his friend Sean O'Casey how thrilling it was to see this all-Black production using West Indian accents. That's where Belafonte met him. I think it's in about 46. And through that experience of the acting that he got to do with the American Negro Theater, he applied to go to acting school at NYU, sorry, at the New School, a program Mm. that was a special program. And he talked his way into it without a high school diploma or anything like that. And he got to go to this graduate school in drama. And he really, really, really wanted to be an actor. And I think a way to understand Belafonte's charisma is as a performer, it was really important to what became compelling about him. So he couldn't get a job as an actor. He's married as a child on the way. Mm -hmm. And one of his 
friends from hanging around the jazz scene in New York offers him a job singing jazz in January 49 as an intermission singer at a, at a great jazz club where a lot of great jazz musicians were working. And Belafonte worked as a jazz singer for about a year and recorded some music and he quit it. He felt like it didn't express him. It was felt artificial to him. He didn't like the rules of it, complicated segregationist rules. He was singing in Miami. He had to take a taxi from the black side of town where he could stay to get to the white places where he could perform. He had to have special passes and stuff like that. And he quit. And he opened a restaurant in Greenwich Village with two friends for a, a year where they sort of nurtured their art and tried to figure out what their next step were. And that's when he began to sing and to sort of experiment and try to find a voice as a singer beyond the jazz standards that he was singing, which never fit him. Mm. And that's when he began to sing what you would call folk songs and calypsos as a kind of folk song and work songs. When he got his big break, which is in 51 at the Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village, he announced himself to be singing work songs, folk songs, and calypsos. So they were always a part of his repertoire, and he had begun to sing them, try them out when he got to sing at Left Wing Benefits and stuff mm -hmm. like that, he sang a couple of calypsos then. So he didn't just start to sing them in 52, and he didn't, or 51, and he didn't just start to sing them in 56 when he, you know, had his big breakthrough record. He's kind of experimenting with them. They're part of his repertoire. I think all those kinds of music expressed his commitment to Black voice in song, Black history, international Black history. Mm. That was his vision. And those three, the labor and the work songs that, that focus on labor, the internationalism of folk songs from different places is being able to sing in many different voices. And then the calypsos, the way he described them is as a kind of living newspaper. The calypsos could comment through humor and mm -hmm other ways that were meaningful to him. So that was the basis of his repertoire. His first record was in 1949. He, it was a song he wrote when he was in acting school. It was called Recognition. I want recognition as a man, that's all. I want recognition as a man. I want to put my... And it was a civil rights plea and a kind of bluesy. It's kind of embarrassing to him. And I think it's a moving song because of his convictions. But it wasn't... But it's a little on the nose or something. Yeah. It wasn't a great uh, song. But the people at the jazz club where he was singing in the intermissions and then a featured singer recorded it on their label. That was The club was called the Royal Roost and it was recorded on the Roost label. And a fanatic DJ Symphony Sid, who loved the Royal Roost, played it a lot in New York, and it did quite well in New York. And people commented on it, and he kept singing it, I think, into 51 and 52. He hadn't found his voice yet. The early songs he sings are, again, not fully him. He starts to record, well, Recognition's 49. He has Capital Sessions in 1949, and he records, like, How Green Was My Valley. Green was my valley. 
and sometimes I feel like a motherless child as it kind of blues. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. He switches managers in 1950 and gets to record on something called the Jubilee Records. And that's when he first starts to record with Harry Belafonte singers. And he records a song called Venezuela that's a little bit closer to what he's interested in. has that gig at the Village Vanguard and Cafe Society. And then he begins to record for RCA Victor in 1952. But he doesn't have his voice yet. And he doesn't, he can't bring the charisma of his performance into his recordings. And they don't work. He's the, the record he records man smart, woman smarter. That's one of his earliest, which is a calypso. He records that in 52. That's right. The woman is mm, smarter. That's right. The woman is mm, smarter. That's right. The woman is mm, smarter. That's right. That's right. He records Timber, which is a work song that Josh White recorded. I gotta pull this timber for the sun go down. Get it across that river for the boys come round. Get it on down that dusty road. Come on, Jerry, let's talk. He records Scarlet Ribbons. I don't know if you know that song, but it's like a sort of pop song. But a lot of people recorded it, and he recorded that. In our town of Scarlet Ribbons. Scarlet ribbons for her And then you record Shenandoah, which is a song Rogues and Sam, which is like an American folk song. Shenandoah, I long to see you. And none of that really hits. The recording is to the end of getting him higher paid gigs as a performer. And that's where he really shines, is well, as a performer. It's also really like interesting that he kind of, I don't know, this all seems just so much happenstance, like that he is able to parlay a lot of things that most people would be like, they'd go to the theater for the first time and be like, oh, I really like that. I wish I could do that. Ah, oh, well, you know, and he stuck around and was like, okay, how do I get myself into this situation? You know, it like foretells of that he would be such a charismatic person or able to kind of like talk his way into situations. There's like something a bit, you know, special about him that he has like a spark. Right. Yeah. And similarly that he's like, you know, I want to pay for acting lessons. So I'll start singing. And then that takes off and he continues to go down that track. And late in life, he said, I was such a good actor that I made you think I was a singer. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm -hmm. his voice is he's not a he never read music. He's not a trained singer. I think that the best way to understand his image is like a performance artist. He sang with a guitar accompaniment so he could use his whole body in the songs. He had both an artistic and political vision of what his music could offer. As he said, the dignity of his people, the historical experience of black experience, the world experience of black experience going back to slavery and spirituals, going forward through various work situations. So it was partly a political mission, I think, that led him to that performance. And of course, you're right. He had a charismatic way. His The first acting teacher at the American Negro Theater who gave him his first part said he was incandescent on stage, even mm -hmm. though he was trained and he didn't know what he was doing and all that. You know, so I think that's right about him. And that's a really important part of him. He put the language of his new career starting in, in 51 
he said he was going to sing folk songs, work songs, and calypsos. He said, these songs signal to an audience, here's Negro life with as much dignity as I can give it. Singing with the uh, guitar accompaniment freed him to use his dramatic training with his face and his body to mm -hmm. inhabit and convey the world invoked in a song. And I think it's all together, his musical style, his appeal, his charisma were inseparable from his uncompromising political stance. Reviewers described him as the total package. <laughs> and I, I think that's right. You can see that recording can't necessarily convey that. And it's a, a long time that he's making records and, and people out in the Midwest say, like, what is this? You know, I don't know what mm -hmm. he's talking about. I, you know, it wasn't recognizable outside of the world. This Caribbean you know, work song isn't relatable <laughs> to my <laughs> life experience. Right, right. <laughs> but basically, this repertoire that he sang and really rose through nightclubs and big high paid performances, he wasn't embodying a single cultural tradition, but he was presenting himself as a black world citizen who drew from and respected multiple traditions. So he's rejecting the segregation of musical genres mm -hmm. as a way that he was protesting racialized boundaries and I think resisting white supremacies. He, he didn't have vocal resonance or the concert presence of Robeson. He didn't convey the experiential authority or musical ingenuity of the Southern blues performers like Lead Belly. And he didn't possess the facility with wordplay that a lot of the Trinidadian Calypsonians had, you know, where they're making up the songs on the moment in the tent. Mm -hmm. But I think his juxtaposition of those three kinds of songs renewed each form. He's clearly articulating calypsos. You can understand his words very clearly. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, most of the time, especially when he has any control over it, he doesn't wear island costumes or, mm. or that. It enabled him to represent calypso as part of other forms of Black and non-elite culture, repositioning the music away from colonial associations with native inferiority or tourist driven. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what he wanted. Of course, once he had the hit album, which I can mm -hmm. say more about in a minute, he got drawn into an incredible apparatus of pop writing and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm not saying that political vision withstood fan magazines and stuff like that, but that is sure. what he was trying to do. I think his intensity, his dramatic authority, his phrasing and his vocal emphasis made audiences feel like they were hearing the music for the first time and engaging directly with a world that came alive through his performance. And I think that was important to why people did buy the albums that they bought after the Calypso breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Belafonte had released two LPs on RCA. Nah, you know, they were okay. But even before the Calypso album was released, his popularity pulled those two up and they began mm -hmm. to sell in the beginning of 56. Oh, so yeah. the, the songs on the Calypso album were gathered and performed on television in 55 before they were recorded. And his friend, the wonderful Black writer, William Attaway, was then working at whatever network the show was on. And they planned this show that would have a unified theme of Caribbean music. Mm -hmm. And Attaway introduced Belafonte to Irving Burgey, who was a wonderful musician and 
folk song collector who was already collecting and recording and trying to figure out about songs all through the Caribbean, all different kinds of songs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's Bergie that wrote the songs on the Calypso album and right. that where they perform them on television. And the television show was kind of corny. It was all kind of in a tourism container, but the songs were powerful and clarifying. And there was a lot of excitement about the songs. So that's, I think, the thing that begins this pull up for Belafonte. Those are the songs that where he's able to link his performance with the music. And just to give one example of that, you can think of the opening of Deo. Deo. You know, that song had been recorded by other people that didn't have that acapella opening that Belafonte used to beckon mm -hmm. listeners. The iconic, and, yeah. Right, I think you can see that. I just want to mention one other thing about it, which is that RCA didn't want to do an album of Calypso music. They didn't want to have that. It, he had to fight to get them to record the album. And the person who supported it was the head of A&R named George Mark, who was a Hungarian Jew who got it and got Belafonte. So I just mean, it wasn't obvious that that was going to be this great idea or anything mm -hmm. like that. It's going to be this powerful experience. So Virgie's songs, he wrote the version of Deo. Mr. Taliman, Talimi Banana. He wrote Jamaica Farewell. I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston. He wrote, I think, six of the songs on the album. You know, one song I just, I want to make a note of that was kind of on the way to the big breakthrough album, Calypso, uh, that I think is worth mentioning is Matilda. That would kind of become a signature audience participation song for him that Absolutely. I think, you know, that was on the LP before and right. by some accounts might've been the first single that was released widely, not just... Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. locally. Well, you know, Matilda was definitely part of his performance. And that is, you're absolutely right about bringing those pieces together and preparing people for what was going to come. They really orchestrated those sessions for the recording of the Calypso. His friend, the jazz clarinetist Tony Scott and members of Scott's orchestra, Belafonte said he wanted to inject a jazz feeling. Other talented musicians, Burgie played on it. The Jamaican pianist and penny whistle player, Herb Levy, the Haitian guitarist, Franz Casseus, singers, Brock Peters, a bunch of great singers are singing on that. So it's really all the pieces are coming together. Burgie played the guitar and sang harmony. Anyway, that's really the thing that is the turning point. Mm -hmm. yeah, and he, there's eight songs on the album were written by Burgie. One was written by Attaway and Belafonte, and two songs were King Radio Calypsos that Belafonte been singing for several years. And King Radio is a guy named Norman Spann, who, you know, a few decades prior had written a bunch of uh, Calypso songs that kind of became almost like standards for, for the Calypso genre. What is the climate like with regard to Black music in the mainstream? Uh, was this kind of treated in a way 
I think sometimes it can be treated like, especially because this would fall a little bit like Calypso music, Caribbean influenced music could fall into a bit of a um, like world music or like outsider music. And so it's like a niche or a novelty or like, oh, the, the Calypso craze, you know, something that's safe for the white people in the suburb to throw a little fondue party with or what, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I guess I'm just wondering what the reception or the climate was like for these songs in, in in that time, if you have that well, information, you know, Calypso songs couldn't be on the radio because they were too dirty, as it were. They had too oh. many cultural illusions. So before the success of this, there were singers were singing cleaned up versions of those songs, like Rum and Coca Cola, the Andrew Sister sang. So there's already a way of taking those songs and cleaning them up for audiences, and the white audiences and black audiences are responding to those songs. White soldiers were stationed in Trinidad. They learned about that music and came home and liked it. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's definitely has already a broader audience, but I Mm -hmm. I just think it's gotten so identified as white acceptable that Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that it has an older tradition in black communities as well, just to kind of keep that in mind. And Belafonte, you know, was definitely a package his total package was very popular with white audiences, mm-hmm. but he always had a devoted black audience too. And I, I guess when I started to write the book, I felt like that was kind of lost. People thought, oh, Belafonte, white people love him. But I traced him through black press and black people loved him too and came to his concerts and really cared about him. So I just want to push that piece. And I think his not only singing calypsos, but singing these work songs and folk songs was another way that he was trying to claim a broader Black experience. Not that they were all Black songs, but a range of songs, an international range in some ways. Yeah, and I think a testament to his broad appeal is the fact that this album was the first album to sell a million copies in a year. Yeah, like This was a huge success. And, you know, Calypso, he's, you know, named by the media, the king of Calypso, which was a moniker I, I don't think he loved because he didn't want that to fall well, on his shoulders. Well, to the Trinidadian exactly. carnival yeah. and not him, and he mm-hmm. never used it. He mm-hmm. tried to distance himself from that. But, I mean, definitely his success generated and all kinds of other people, Latin artists, Tito Puente and Paris Prado and Sarah Vaughan and Dinah Washington and Rosemary Clooney and Pat Boone and even Robert Mitchum all released Calypso albums after that. Maya Angelou was singing Calypso songs before that with other people. You know, so I just mean it's, it's a it's a moment. moment. Yeah. yeah. A quick, fun, little aside factoid is that at the time that Deo is charting there is another version of the song that one is just called you know the banana boat song and it's by a group called the terriers and one of the terriers is alan arkin Right. Which is just a a very strange thing to to happen. Carriers was a mixed and interracial group, had black singers and white singers. And, you know, but I think it's very illuminative, you know, to listen to the two versions and see what you can really tell why Belafonte's version is the one that um, withstood the test of time. 
Right. I want to take a quick break and we'll get back to this. But before we get to the break, all I want to allude to is that as Calypso is becoming this hot new thing, there is another thing that is becoming hot and new and it's called rock and roll. So that's my little <laughs> tease. It's my little tease. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break, you uh, appreciated a crunch when you needed a crunch. Yep, crunch uh, on through. Crunch on through. All right, so where we left it in, in the story of Belafonte, he has this Calypso album. It is his third LP. It is a huge success, sells a lot of copies. Calypso becomes the thing. Is it going to be a fad? What's going, you know, what's going to happen? Everyone's doing a Calypso song because it's the, it's the moment it's now. And uh, yeah, let's, let's take it from there. Well, one thing about rock and roll is the importance of Afro-Latin musics in the emergence of rock and roll. And people that know much more about music than I do have identified that. So what does rock and roll entail exactly? It means different things to different people, but I, I just think that's one link between that moment and Belafonte's rise and rock and roll. I mean, he's definitely not a rock and roller and he's you know that's not his world it's not his platform it's not where he positions himself he is able to draw tremendous crowds between 56 and 60 and sing very powerful performances and make the live the things that sell are the calypso album and his live albums from his performances so he's still very involved in that he was very careful to just not call himself a calypsonian to distance himself from what he called calypsomania to try anyway with the resources he had which weren't that many you know in publicity just just say that he was a singer of folk material from every section of the world. He praised the topicality of true Calypso, that Trinidadian, as a kind of living newspaper. So he's using an expression from the 30s of bringing the news in. And certainly mm -hmm. the Calypsonians whom he admired, Lord Invader, were doing that, Sir Lancelot. That's the kind of Calypso they were doing. And they were, all of them were singing in support of uh, the third party candidacy of Henry Wallace in 48 along with Robeson. So I just mean those Calypsonians were part of that broad left that Belafonte was part of. One thing that's interesting about him vis-a-vis -vis rock and roll is that Belafonte's celebrity gets identified with the new stage of civil rights protest. You know, the Montgomery bus boycotts in 55. King comes to New York in, I think, January 56, trying to raise money. He meets Belafonte. And from that point on, Belafonte is really importantly associated with King and with the new demands for civil rights and the rejection of segregation and the sort of more articulate, forceful demands for, for racial equality. So I think I would say that's the trail that he, the trajectory that he is on after 56. And he sings and makes tons of money through his singing and with benefits that really is important in helping support King's SCLC. And then later also the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I mean, he's multiple in his allegiances. He 
stands for the link between labor and civil rights and addresses labor, you know, a civil rights rally in the garment district. Those are the ties that he carries on in the late 50s. But here's something interesting. What I think, I mean, so he does stuff. His chosen political commitments associated him with the new stage of civil rights, and he became very important to them, civil rights workers. But also, I'm guessing that buying and playing his records also made people feel a tangible connection to Black and multiracial and international cultures that his music represented. And I, this is a, a survey in the New York area of male and female high school and college students that was reported in Billboard in 56. It found that more students ranked white performers, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Teresa Brewer, and Doris Day as their favorite singers. Despite that, Belafonte had the highest percentage of record buyers. Mm. So it's partly that Older people are buying records, families are buying records, Black people are buying records that might not show up on that. But one thing that I ponder is in that time period, the students at Marquette, which is a Jesuit university in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. um, petitioned to replace Presley on the jukebox in the student union with Belafonte. And I wonder if that's because they wanted to associate themselves with the civil rights aura around Mm -hmm. Belafonte. I don't know. Wow. Clout. Clout way back in the 50s. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Yeah. And just, you know, for for our listeners to, I know it's not that long ago, but this is still the the time of segregation. And, you know, for him to be such a major crossover artist is is so meaningful, kind of like you're saying. And he, he represents something because of the politics at the time. And he speaks to that. He mm-hmm. constantly, when he has the fame after 56, he constantly critiques tokenism. He pushes for more Black employment in front of the cameras, behind the cameras, in the recording studios. He has a full set of demands. And he increasingly, in the late 50s, he begins to try to produce his own television. And he also forms a production company that where he is the first Black person to greenlight a film in Hollywood in 59. You know, I'm not saying that all these efforts are tremendously successful, but he felt that he had to put his money where his mouth was. Mm-hmm. He wanted to declare these positions. He wanted to, and he, because he was the singer as well by the 56 as a movie star, he had made his first film in 52 was a very modest film, but in 54, he was part of Carmen Jones. He was, didn't get to sing in it. He was dubbed, but he is the movie star in Carmen Jones, and he, which was a really successful all-black cast, but powerful movie based on the opera of Carmen, which had been a Broadway show and now was a movie. And then he's in Island in the Sun in 57, where mm-hmm. he is, again, plays a labor leader, uses the film to critique, you know, Zanuck, the Hollywood producer says, oh, this film has nothing to do with anything going on in the United States. And Belafonte says, David Boyer, the labor is exactly what we want. You know, he he uses his opportunities. But what I'm saying is that he had the ability, because he was the singer and had the records and could perform as well as a movie star, to be critical. And that's a position, for example, that Poitier, as who often said, I can't sing, didn't have that ability. He was an actor and he wasn't going to criticize racial representation in Hollywood. He just wasn't in a position to do that. As mm-hmm. he yeah. Belafonte had that and he'd used it. 
to be very outspoken. And in Island in the Sun, uh, of course, he also sang the title song for that movie as well. Island in the Sun But I, I just want to say that at the time of the civil rights movement, Belafonte was a hero to those students. And mm-hmm. the, for just an example, the Nashville sit-in students who sat in 1960, they sang Deo when they were in jail together. And then the Freedom Riders protesters wrote new words, freedom's coming and it won't be long, when they were in parchment penitentiary when they were arrested from the freedom rights. So I just think the link of the music and his presence and his persona became part of the civil rights movement, not only through his relationship to King and his fundraising, but he bought money for the student on violent coordinating committee to have dark rooms so they could photograph their movement. He was like a real patron of the civil, the young students, and they knew it, and they mm-hmm. knew they could go to him to bail them out when they got arrested for this or that. And he saw himself as nurturing them. And in '64, after the brutal Freedom Summer, he took leaders of Freedom Summer and SNCC to Africa for a revitalizing visit. He took Fannie Lou Hamer, the famous sharecropping woman mm-hmm. who was the figurehead of the 64 National Convention. He took her to Africa. She practically fainted when the president of Guinea, I think that's where they were, came to see her. She took her bath after the airplane. <laughs> he was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> he's coming to see me. So I think it was really powerful to have that kind of experience for the range of people that went on the trip. Yeah, you know, and his activism... You know, is something that obviously would continue throughout his entire life. And, you know, at the stage we're talking about, he continues to put out music, but within a few years, the music he's putting out, it's not as popular as kind of the Haiti of Calypso. I think some things to note, the song Jump in the Line came on like his kind of last big album, Jump Up Calypso in 1961. Shake, 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 Sonora, shake your body liner. You know, and that's a song that for people who like the movie Beetlejuice would be mm-hmm. familiar, uh, both in the movie and, you know, in the uh, Broadway revival plays a big part. And then a little rock and roll note to point out is that in 1962, he releases an album called Midnight Special. And the title track of that, the person playing the harmonica is a young Bob Dylan on his very first released recording. And so we we have Belafonte in a way to thank for the first time anyone heard technically on a record, Bob Dylan. Dylan writes very lovingly about how powerful it was for him to be there. And so, you know, the by the mid 60s, the albums aren't really on the top 40 anymore. Obviously, around this time, we're seeing the British invasion, we're seeing the Beatles, that kind of becomes the hot new thing. Uh, But he continues to use his influence and status to support artists, specifically from Africa, to expose them to new audiences. He does an album uh, with Miriam Makeba called An Evening with Belafonte Makeba, which uh, wins the best ethnic or traditional folk recording Grammy, which we talked about (laughs) last week, because that is a category that the other early influence inductee, Elizabeth Cotton, won that 
category, which has since been renamed, but he won that actually a few times. Well, I should say the South Africa thing was part of his internationalist vision. He was active in South Africa stuff starting in 1960. He started a artist's boycott of South Africa in 1966. Uh, you know, this was really meaningful to him. And, you know, he's the one that when Nelson Mandela got freed from jail, Belafonte took him on the tour of the United States. He, he led the tour of Mandela wow. across the so his South Africa activism is very consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, activist isn't quite the right thing, but he's like lends his political voice and his talents to that. And I think the international piece is increasingly important to him and audiences around the world continue to stand up for him after he doesn't have that audience in the U.S. anymore. Mm-hmm. An interesting kind of historical thing that happened in the late 60s is when he filled in for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. He was a guest host. Oh, and wow. That, this is another great example and, and one on a huge stage where he used his influence to talk about civil rights, talk to Dr. King, talk to RFK talked to Aretha Franklin like he he had a you know he really used that that wasn't just a gig he he kind of took his moment and made it meaningful he was reluctant to do it and he got the deal that he didn't have to do any ads mm. he, other people would do the ads he was just going to do and he got the all to ask the guests and to, to raise topics that had not been raised on television in that way. There's a, a documentary now about it that is, it's a fabulous, fabulous stuff. But he, he, you know, I think he used almost every opportunity he got to like push the envelope. And that was one of the big ones. Yeah. And you know, uh, the rest of, he stops making Calypso music in 1971. He puts out Calypso Carnival. That is his fifth and final Calypso album. Uh, and then after that, he, he releases a few albums here and there over the 70s and 80s, doing a lot of touring, as we said, that's like you know, being a live act and touring the world is a is a major part of his career. At, at and this touring point. often with South African singers and other singers, he was enlivened by that and brought singers to his audiences as well. I, you know, I think it went both ways mm-hmm. when he sang with Makeba and women he sang with later i think it was something that gave him a lot as well as a platform for them as they Mm -hmm. began to be known in the united states yeah and in in america i would say at this time you know he's he's still like a beloved cultural icon you know he pops up on talk shows and does tv specials uh memorable appearance on the muppet show singing the song uh, turn the world around that's fabulous In 2013, he started an organization to help artists figure out how to use their musical platform, how to be politically active citizens, as well as musicians and artists. It's called Sankofa.org. And he has a whole range of young artists that feel incredibly indebted to him. So I think he's really kept the intergenerational spirit. I went to the honoring of him for his 95th birthday. I wasn't able to go to the 93rd, but all kinds of people, Common comes out to sing for Chuck D is one of the big fans of Belafonte and Taylor Puelli. They feel like they've really gotten a huge amount out of his wisdom and his insights. 
another person that is San, Carlos Santana mm-hmm. is somebody that loves Belafonte. And when Santana was invited to go to Obama's White House, he you know was talking to people, what should he do? He had objections to this policy of Obama's and that policy of Obama's. Should he go? Should he not go? And he said everybody was telling him to take off his war paint. And when he talked to Belafonte about it, Belafonte said, Take it all off. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And you know, the you you mentioned a, a number of hip hop artists. The hip hop connection with Harry Belafonte, I, I think, is is a really interesting one. Yes. He, he, yes. he saw the value in hip hop to deliver messages that need to be heard. And he produced a movie in 1984 called Beat Street because he was so enamored with hip hop and he wanted to kind of capture that moment before it got too commodified or became less pure. And you've got a lot of those really important early hip hop artists like The Furious Five and Treacherous Three and and Dougie Fresh, Cool Herc, Bambata. If not deriving the wisdom from his words, the hip hop guys know him as as the person who did Beat Street, which was like a really (laughs) important moment for them early on. And he, you know, forged kind of a brotherhood. He met with Fidel and promoted Cuban hip hop artists in a meeting with Fidel that Cuban hip hop artists felt very appreciative of. Yeah. Wow. And then, of course, you know, he, in 1985, he helped to organize and was a part of We Are the World, right. which, you know, features fellow inductee this year, Lionel Richie. And that was such a big moment in pop culture. Oh my gosh, they are going to hang out. Sorry. Now I'm just like realizing what the Lionel Richie and Harry Belafonte getting in this year together kind of, they are going to hang out. They'll be happy to see each other. Yeah. There's going to be pictures with the two of them. Yeah. That's going to be like really cool. Something we talk about a lot on the show is kind of, yeah, the influence that an artist had. And obviously if this artist is being inducted in the early influence category, they have had a lot of influence too. It's like interesting to think about all of the not just like musical I just I mean like Harry Belafonte changed the world he was able to to stay true to his principles while also operating in a very dirty world you know and a really like a dirty system and a bad place (laughs) and like he was able to maintain his values and his principles while also being a like a black man on television, in movies, on records, on the radio, being someone that maybe people think of as their first, you know, people who don't have any black friends think of as their, oh, well, I have Harry Belafonte records or whatever. Like he got inside people's homes and into their hearts or women were like, oh my God, do I have a crush on Harry Belafonte? You know, or white women. It was like soft power. And then he also had these really hard principles as well, which he maintained. I think that's like pretty incredible about him that he did have a way to find his way through the this system as best he could with the political principles he came in with i i do think that that's really significant about he 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 had his eye on the prize of speaking his truth Uh, he he always quotes robeson about artists are the ones that can tell the truth and speak to social justice. And that's what we need to do. And I I do, you know, he wasn't always commercially successful. And I think that's another thing about him. He figured out multiple ways to manage that didn't rely on a one-way trajectory of commercial success. You know, he tried some different things. I think he's played a really significant role at the crossroads of culture and politics and been more 
public in that than almost anybody else that you can think of. Yeah, I think that's his influence. When we talk about him being inducted right. as an early influence, I don't know that there's necessarily a like direct musical link, but yeah. I do think it is the using your your status and your influence as an artist to try to enact change and speak your truth and, and try to speak truth to power and do what you can to make a difference. I think that is his legacy. And I think that is his influence. Robeson taught him artists are the gatekeepers of truth. Artists are civilization's radical voices. And that's the you know thing he had to his heart about his own trajectory going forward. So let's talk about his induction a little bit. It was mentioned earlier, he inducted Pete Seeger, who was inducted as an early influence. He did that in 1996, gave a speech. He also inducted- Pete Seeger, uh, back again too. Yeah, and you know, the, Seeger, <laughs> the Seeger family was very involved uh, with taking Elizabeth Cotton and her music and getting it out there. So we've, we've got some strong Seeger connections on both of these early influence inductees this year. Uh, he also inducted Public Enemy in 2013. Oh, that, yeah, that's great. And that's, you know, you know that really speaks to kind of what, what we've been talking about. Like, yes. I know that, that Chuck D- wanted yeah. Harry to give the yeah. speech and, yeah. and requested him specifically. And so who will give the speech to induct Harry Belafonte? I mean, I think Chuck D is kind of at the top of the list, uh, almost like returning the favor in a mm-hmm. way. And, and he's someone who can give such a rousing speech and really understands the importance of, of Belafonte. Santana. Yeah, Carlos Santana, for mm-hmm. sure. The That's also a wonderful choice that I think Belafonte would love. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of just look at these kind of birthday celebrations that he's done and see who's been involved. And you have a long list of a, of a lot of people, you know, whether it's I was looking at the the 94th was a virtual celebration. I'm that, sorry. So does he just throw a big concert every year for his birthday? No, like Diana Ross. Okay. The the, um, 93rd was because he had just given his papers to the Schomburg and it was sort of a fundraiser for the New York Public Library. And the 95th, I didn't know about the 94th, but the 95th was a fundraiser for the Sankofa.org. So I, you know, I just mean there's a a method to his. Yes. And, And he, you know, he can't come anymore. I mean, he was there in the 90-30, but that's before COVID. And, you know, by the 95th, he couldn't be present, but it was beautifully live streamed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And at 95, he is the oldest living inductee. Typically, we we see these early influence inductees, and it's someone like Sister Rosetta Tharp or someone yeah. who has not been with us for a long time. to say the least, yes. Uh, and so this is... Oh, be wonderful. Really, yeah, really wonderful that he's, you know, alive to appreciate it. And I'm just going to run through the list of some of these people who have been involved in some of these birthday celebrations. You know, Tiffany Haddish hosted the virtual 94th one. Oprah was involved, Usher, Danny Glover, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. John Legend was at the 95th. And I think he's an interesting one because I know he is... In good standing with the hall, he inducted Dr. John a few years back. Harry Belafonte also wrote the Time 100 article for John Legend when Time Magazine does their like 100, you know, influential people. And so there's definitely a relationship there. And if he doesn't give the speech, I could see for sure if there is going to be a tribute performance, John Legend doing that. He seems to fit the bill. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, and do you think he will show up in person? Do you think that Harry Belafonte, you don't think so? 
But I don't know. Don't I? <laughs> don't quote I'm you. Not, he lives in New York. He lives in New York, but he's pretty frail. Yeah, the show will be out here this year in Los, in, Angeles. In Los Angeles. So. Well, they established last year with Tina Turner, you know, if an artist is willing to participate but not able to make it, that they can record an acceptance speech, you know, from their home and just play the video. Maybe we'll we'll have something like that. But it's not it's not off the table that he could show Great. up. But Great. we'll also say you're going through this list of people and stuff. It just feels it's like Clarence Avant all over again, where it's like there are 30 people <laughs> who are huge names who he is intimately connected to and that could show up. You know, it's like, yeah, the list. I mean, the list goes on I, the names. I didn't mention like Spike Lee and Whoopi Goldberg. Like it, it could just keep going well, and going. I you don't, know? you know, Sp- I, Spike Lee doesn't know him that well. And I don't think I mean, I don't have the feeling that Whoopi does either just from her remarks at mm-hmm. the 95th, but you have uh, Danny Glover as somebody that loves him and that he loves also and that has worked closely with him. I, you know, he's not a singer, so maybe he can't be on the list, but he'd be another person that would love to tribute him. Yeah, they did not do performances for the early influence inductees last year. They did a quick one for Charlie Patton. Uh, there will definitely be a great video package. That's something we can for sure count on. I hope there's some sort of performance, though. That is up in the I air. I just say this thing about Spike Lee. When Spike Lee came up at the 95th, he said, Harry said to him, how come you give all the parts to Ossie and you don't give them to me? And so <laughs> I said, so, oh, that's why I did put him in the Black Klansman. He's in Black Klansman, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. But the the yeah, the, this induction I think is going to be it's going to be cool. The package for sure is going to be great. Hope he gets a legit speech. You know, with these the, the thing with the Rock Hall these days is they induct so many people in a given year that for the live mm-hmm. ceremony they have to chop stuff down really tight. So we might only get a video package, but if he's there, he'll get a real speech. If not, we'll get something that is probably mostly virtual. Regardless. Do you think you would go to the induction ceremony if you could get a ticket? I love to go to LA. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't, right? It'll be nice and sunny. Yeah. Any final thoughts that you have about the man or the induction? You know, I, I just would say he never shied away from the dangerous crossroads where art and politics meet. Mm-hmm. And he has been extremely generous in trying to support younger artists to take up the mantle mm-hmm. and and i think he's really dedicated himself to cross-generational dialogue around how to make social change and what needs to be done now and the school to prison pipeline and you know all that he's totally on all that he's not stuck in the past he's mm-hmm. you know really to me that's so admirable i would love to be able to be doing that when i'm in my 90s if i make it to my 90s but yeah. I, i'm full of admiration for him if you look at him it's hard not to be of course. Well, yeah. thank you so much for, for joining us and, and bringing along your, your knowledge and insight about Mr. Belafonte. We appreciate it. The book, again, is Becoming Belafonte, Black Artist, Public Radical. Is there anything else you would like to plug at this moment? Anything you'd like to promote? No? All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, if, if people are interested in, in learning more about uh, 2022 Early Influence inductee, Harry Belafonte, that's a the book is a great resource. And of course, 
our listeners know they can follow us at rockallpod on Twitter and Instagram, rockallpod at gmail.com is the email. If you want Kristen to see your message, you need to designate that somewhere. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it. She doesn't want to read it. Uh, quick note, I will be at the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago on June 29th doing my new uh, stand-up hour. So please, if you're in the area, come along and uh, would love to see you and I'll try to make you laugh. So there, there's that coming up. Uh, I will be in Chicago on July 9th, that Saturday, uh, performing at the Paper Machete. We have shows in Chicago. Oh, great. Yeah, up. so for our, our Midwest <laughs> listeners, they, they can uh, come come on out. It'll be a lot of fun. The Paper Machete in particular is a, a lot of fun. Uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Rate and review us. Five stars only. That's always appreciated. A nice review, a nice rating. Anything less, though, than five stars, don't do it, even if you're tempted. That's mm-hmm. rude, and we don't like that. Uh, thank you to Mike Lloyd for the logo. Thank you to Yusuke Kim for the music. And thank you to Pantheon Podcasts for hosting us. I'm Joe Pozala. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares? About the Rock Hall. Rock Hall.